0: Welcome to Maine's Oyster Aquaculture Podcast. My name is Bill Perna. Here we have weekly conversations with oyster farmers, many who are marine biologists, ninth generation fishermen, or former hedge fund guys, but all are driven by the desire to work on the water and to fight the impact of climate change. These are global stories just told locally. Maine faces some big challenges. The Gulf of Maine is the second fastest warming body of water on the planet, but these folks have ideas and solutions, driven by science and innovation. These entrepreneurs are a resilient, gritty group. Oyster Aquaculture cleans water, helps coastal communities, preserves Maine's working waterfront, just as it contributes to Maine's economy, the food scene, and tourism. These are stories told with humor and optimism about the best oysters in the world. Today, we are here with Bill Mook, an industry pioneer who is the founder of Mook Sea Farm, an oyster farm on the Damascada River. Bill has been recognized by the Gulf of Maine Council's Sustainable Industry Awards for his efforts to improve the Gulf of Maine ecosystem and coastal communities. He was a member of the Maine Ocean Acidification Commission that convened, wrote, and submitted a report to the Maine legislature on the effects of coastal and ocean acidification on commercially harvested species that are grown along Maine's coast. A tireless advocate for climate change awareness and how ocean acidification impacts oysters. Bill was a founding member of the Damariscotta River Association Tidewater Watch that served as the model for the Coastwide Volunteer Monitoring Program for Pollution. He is a founding member of the Shellfish Growers Climate Coalition in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy. He has testified to the U.S. Congress about impacts of ocean acidification and climate change. Bill also serves on Governor Mills' Climate Council. This was recorded October 19, 2019 at Mook Farm in Walpole, Maine, on the beautiful Damascada River. Bill Mook was kind enough to share some of his wisdom and knowledge he has gained from working 35 years developing Maine oyster aquaculture. Okay, Bill, what does it really take to succeed in oyster aquaculture?
1: To be in this business, you have to be persistent, you have to be a problem solver, and you have to be pragmatic. The persistence is, I think, a huge part of it. You know, I, can, I just look over... Um, some of the things that happened to, to me over the 35 years I've been doing this, we came that close to going out of business.
0: I heard a story about a guy who dumped his septic truck into the Damariscotta River right next to your farm. That's really unbelievable. Can, can you tell us about that story?
1: What you might not have heard is that, that to catch that guy, I got tipped off. I uh, took my wife's sob and uh, pulled in at the head of our driveway. The night that I got tipped off, I started going in and surveilling the, the, the neighbor, and I would turn the lights off, park up there, walk down our driveway. I was dressed all in black. I had a black mag light with a little red lens, and I would sneak along the shore, and I did that every night until I caught him. And I was on the verge of going out of business. I was thinking of how I could sell all the assets off and try not to lose my house. And essentially, you know, It it takes that kind of, you know, that's what
0: I had to do. But you took the polluter to court and you won. Did you get a
1: settlement? I got a minuscule settlement. Right. The lawsuit was for $1.6 million Mm -hmm. and I got pennies on the dollar. The other point I always make is that it's one of the things that that I think drew people like us into this is this commitment. We we view what we do as an environmental advocation. You have to have clean water to do what we do. Mm -hmm. So de facto, you become a clean water advocate.
0: Can you talk about the beginning of the Damariscotta River Association, the water monitoring program that became, I believe, the statewide citizens monitoring water quality program?
1: Going back to those original days, nineteen eighty eight, everybody thought the Dariscotta River was this, you know, pristine, gorgeous and it was a gorgeous estuary. Nineteen ninety eight, and this was after Smokey, Carter, and those guys got going too, we were hit with a closure because of fecal coliform in the river. And so we all got together. What was the source of the pollution? So we all got together and this is another thing that I think whenever the chips were down there was a problem that affected us all, we would always get together even though we were competitive with each other at various times to maybe too much so at times that that when there was a disease or something like this we all pulled together and, and accomplished really good things and there's a lesson in that and, and in this case we all got together and we um, teamed up with the Danvers County River Association, which is now Coastal Rivers, and with Lincoln Academy, and we created a lab, they did water testing, we realized that there were a lot of overboard discharges still in the river that were affecting water quality. We teamed up, we worked with the Department of Marine Resources, we had created this little network of volunteer water quality monitoring people, Mm -hmm. and they were trained by DMR to sample for them, and we had set stations and worked up the results every year, did an annual report, and basically cleaned the river up. That's pretty amazing. How long did it take to clean the river up? I would say a year or so, maybe a little longer. But it was, it 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 all happened pretty fast. And, And it was really spurred on by all of us whose livelihoods depended on having clean water. In this case, that program evolved into a statewide citizens monitoring, water quality monitoring program that, you know, carried way beyond the shores of the Nebraska River. Those are things that right. give, I think, those of us who started out early great satisfaction. Right.
0: Well, let me ask you, I mean, I would think there would be a great deal of satisfaction in, in looking at where the business is today. You look around and say, hey, this none of this existed. And, you know, you were all people who not only had to work out right. the technology, in, invent yeah the yeah. technology perfect and continue to refine the science all while and it you're, never stops yeah, yeah and, and while at, but when when i hear some of the stories about how like dick talking about these these ch- japanese lanterns yeah. and he says that every time by the time you're clean want you had to start all over yeah. again and then ice flows and right. all the things right. that can can just throw you off path but now while things are looking pretty damn good, it seems to me and i and I hope that there's a forward step on this. It looks like it could be undermined by a lot of global trends that aren't going to be that fabulous, and we're we're already rapidly well i'm not you know yeah. more than i do um, how does I mean, it seems to me like you are probably the best positioned for that in the entire business.
1: Well, I think uh, the infrastructure we have created is kind of platform technology that, that helps, um, can help the entire industry adapt to these changing, these global and local environmental changes, that, which are profound, frankly. Right. And there, there, so there's a little bit of a history with that. Where we are today is in large measure due to the catastrophes that we had faced. So the first one was the whole pollution thing. And, and we, when that happened, we really focused on improving our technology and, and try, trying to, now that we knew that our water was cleaned up, how do we turn this into a really dependable process to make these little baby oysters? And and we made a lot of progress on that. And then in 2009, um, that's when ocean acidification reared its ugly head. And, and uh, ocean acidification is a global problem. The global process is basically increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, third of which dissolves into the oceans and over time is making the water more acidic.
0: If I could ask a yes. question. When you said 2009 was the first year that ocean acidification reared its, its ugly head and what were For us per, yeah, you know yeah, what were the what, what was yeah. the symptoms of ocean acidification so two?
1: what happened to us was that our larval production was cut in half probably. it was hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost revenue because our hatchery production just faltered and and we were seeing we would do we would spawn our oysters and rarely in a few occasions, they wouldn't develop past the first day or so. That was quite rare. More often, we would see the larvae. You know, they become normal-looking larvae. They would start to feed and grow normally, and then all of a sudden, they would stop feeding, and they would, uh, and then we would have to kind of coax them back. And instead of taking 14 days to go through that larval process, it would sometimes take them. 21 or even up to 28 days and if you if you thinking about having batches of oysters going through in this process It just threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing and and what we quickly realized was that there was a link between our problems That we were seeing and runoff it happened to be right. 2009 was a really really wet spring and early right. summer and so we were kind of focused on that part of it and To make a long story short again we got tipped off by the guys from the west coast who had been dealing with ocean acidification a couple of them came to maine talked to us and it was i'll never forget it was a cold miserable day in november and we all met in rockland uh at the lighthouse museum and we were in this room and these guy, a guy named alan barton from whiskey creek Patrick on the west coast told us about how um they'd finally figured out, after thinking it was bacteria and this and that, they finally figured out that what was happening was, with increasing offshore winds, there was more deep upwelling of acidic water, and he described what their larvae were doing, and it was just close enough and enough of a match, so we left that meeting, Andy Stevenson and I, the hatchery manager, vowing, okay, what we can do here is we can assume that that's it and do all the things that we can think of that would address that and see if it helps. And ultimately we wound up figuring out, which is what they did out there, is how to buffer the water to basically raise the pH. And how
0: would you do that exactly?
1: Commonly you use like sodium carbonate, yeah. just washing soda yeah, yeah. just adds yeah. carbonate ions yeah. to the water so that there's more calcium carbonate in the water. It's pretty amazing and it's right. not very expensive to right, do. Right, And but, but it was like turning a light switch on. So all of a sudden,
0: Every every
1: cohort. I mean it was it was like what I've been dreaming of for my for 20 years, you right. know. It, it, it was just beyond belief. You know, it was a light switch. Right. And every single cohort would go, we'd spawn them in 14 days or you know, give or take a day, we would be setting those and, and they'd go through metamorphosis. And not only that, we found that our yields of the larvae that would go into the screens to go to set. That, that we were getting a higher yield on what went in because they were healthier. So so that that sort of there was that whole episode and you know I'd been reading the uh, all of the early um, climate reports mm-hmm. uh, like the for the federal government would do these climate assessments. You have the IPCC mm-hmm. reports and I was mm-hmm. looking at those and all of them were talking about how we're going to see this increase in intensity and frequency of storms and yeah and we were starting to see that and then next you know and that was actually factored in so so the fresh water happens to be a big driver for ocean acidification in main coastal waters because the fresh water starts out at a pH that's acidic Whoa. it's under 7 and it's running through land and and geology Picking that's been well well that's been stripped of its buffering capacity by acid decades of acid rain right so you have all these things bringing this fresh water in on top of the carbon dioxide coming in from the atmosphere and that increasing. And it just reached a point on that really rainy season where it created um, enough of a problem for us meter. that we had to kind of figure out how to deal with it. And that, but that was like the light bulb going off and saying, you know, we ought to be thinking about other things. And we started thinking about, well, what about these rainfall closures? So right. in Maine, they, you get a two-inch rainfall that affects a growing area. They close it. They close, they're called Area 500 closures, and they can be big. They can be from New Hampshire to the Canadian border, or New Hampshire to Cape Elizabeth. Or
0: How long are the closures for? Like two or three days? What they
1: do is they close them as soon as there's two inches of rain recorded and then they go out and they sample to make sure that the water's clean. And So it, it, it's gotten better, I think it's usually now a little under a week before they reopen it, but, in, but there were times when it would be a week or more, and you lose those sales. It's not like you can make it just up. pick it right back up. Yeah, so, go on. and so, and as we start continue to grow and be more successful in our market oyster production, we realized that this was a significant cost and that, and that you know, started thinking about, well, how can we deal with that? So that room out here right. is our answer. That room is it has four 26,000 gallon tanks under, under the floor, sep- oh. totally separated from one another, 50 feet long, 10 feet wide, and eight feet deep. And each one of them holds uh, 21 of these, those white bins that right. you, you may have seen walking yep. around down there. And so the whole room will hold half a million oysters, and, and they're in a, it's in a completely recirculating system, or we can exchange water from the Nebraska River. We don't think right now that the technology is there to economically grow oysters to market size of the land. I just toured a Springworks, have you ever heard of that? It's up in Lisbon. Mm. The guy's using tilapia, mm. to, to, which is not a very great fish, but, mm. but they produce a lot of ammonia and everything, and they do, it's a source of protein. They, they grow the tilapia, and then the effluent from the tilapia tanks goes into um, a hydroponic system to grow lettuce. So he's growing like a million heads of lettuce a year under in his good. greenhouse. It's amazing. Right. The kid's like in his early 20s. So what we're looking at is we feel we've opened up a really big bottleneck yeah. in, in production of doing more on land, right. and that bottleneck has always been the food, and so this fermentation technology. It's basically yeah. using sugar instead of light. Right. And and the idea is, and it has to be done in a clean room, so it's a very high-tech process. You gown up, you go in through an airlock to get in to work on the cultures. But it grows, it, you don't, for us, it's a huge saver of electrical energy because you're not generating light, which is mm. expensive, mm. and you're not having to get rid of the heat that is also expensive to get rid of from generating light. So. So we're basically, um, and we're able to grow enormous quantities of microalgae in a very small footprint.
0: And Mooc Sea Farms develops all that? We develop that.
1: And our system we think is unique. We don't, it's not patented, but we have non-disclosure agreements
0: that everybody has to sign who works on it. Can you lease out the intellectual property?
1: We're not at that stage. We're, we should be doom and gloom about climate change. However, wherever there's a problem, there's an opportunity. And so, An example is us being able to sequester oysters during these rainfall closures and be able to sell through those. That's a business opportunity for us and we're taking advantage of that. Being able to develop a process which we believe is gonna require feeding the oysters. So when they come in, we purge the the vibrio, we reduce the vibrios in those oysters and we can hopefully someday have a process that we take them through where we guarantee that our oysters aren't gonna get anybody sick. That's a business opportunity. By yeah. nature, you can't be a farmer and not be optimistic. probably um, pathologically optimistic. <laughs> right. You know, but but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I believe that there's a lot of stuff we can do. The whole thing that I did trying to get this climate coalition going was, you know, I'm we will as part of our business be doing all these things looking for the opportunities trying to figure out how to do stuff with less carbon how to you know make things more sustainable and there's tons of stuff we can do and how to adapt to the environmental changes but we also need to push people to address the root causes right because nobody can do that alone that's got to be a global team effort this building is really um, aimed at being able to take advantage of opportunities for Mooksi Farm, create, you know, I don't I don't want to have worked 35 years in this field, or 40, or whatever it turns out to be, and see what I've done for my life's work vaporize, you know, just go down the tubes because of them. So we're trying to be really intentional and thoughtful now about how to make this so that it's a business that will carry on. So we're doing that by Looking at ways to diversify our revenue streams, so we already do seed oysters, we do um, market oysters. We're as of 2020, we're going to be selling microalgae paste, which in frozen one-kilogram blocks. Well, so software. if you go to any shellfish hatchery, you go to Cherry Stones or, or Coast Oyster on the West Coast. They have big greenhouses when they're in in production for their for their hatchery for their seed. They've got big greenhouses filled with tubes like they have at the Darling Center, okay. and they're all, you know, growing algae that's oh. growing and being fed all the time oh. to the animals. So oh, what, I, what we're doing now see. is growing it, freezing it, TV putting dinner. it in storage for four months or whatever, yeah. and then being able to take it out of the freezer and feed it. TV dinner for TV dinner oysters? TV
0: dinner for oysters. Yeah. That's Only brilliant. much more nutrition. You know, you talk to people and you hear lots of interesting ideas or part ideas and Maine arguably creates the best oyster in the world. I certainly like to think so. So it gets a premium price. It does. And, it, and it, is, it is a really top quality oyster. And, and it seems that people who yeah. appreciate the difference are willing, not necessarily happy, right. but they're willing to pay that price difference. Is the marketing of the Maine brand seems to me... Something somebody's got to. There's an opportunity there get, for get, sure. Get 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 yeah. a hold of this yeah. thing, and you know somebody was saying is you know you don't they don't necessarily market you know Bob's Lobster. They uh, they said in 1930 some genius in Maine, Maine lobster, yeah. said Maine Lobster Vacation Land, yeah. and it has just worked billions of dollars worth of income Absolutely. that has been generated yep. from that. But but I think on the flip side is you've got the whole Tarar marar idea where you want to so if you say it's a main you're
1: branding all these little things in fact that there's a there's a um, an an advantage to having all these small brands that people you know
0: yes that's yeah. what i mean but yeah. under an umbrella whether it yeah. be napa valley right. such and such right right it's from Napa Valley, right. Jordan's, yeah. Cabernet, from sure. Napa. Yeah, You go, got it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, in. I'm in. And I think
1: Maine it, has an opportunity to do that. Yes. Right. And uh, my idea is I think we need to do that, but in doing it in a way that um, educates consumers. About That's what right. I mean. Too. That's exactly but, uh, Not. Yeah. In other words, so we're in an era where more people are interested in... Where their food comes from, how it's grown, that it's sustainably grown, and um, that, and in our case, we have such an incredible story to tell about the ecological services that our farms provide. Absolutely, and Absolutely. so that I think by selling all that, you know, under the main oyster, you know, brand, right. I think that um, it it can help address some of the political things that are the fallout of that mayor point.
0: If you like stories like this, visit maineoysterbook.com to hear more podcasts, or you can pre-order the new book from Perna Content, Maine Oysters, The Story of Resilience and Ingenuity. The book is filled with stories about the people who have and continue to create the story of Maine oyster aquaculture. The book has stunning photography by some of Maine's best photographers. A portion of the proceeds of this podcast and Maine Oyster Book are contributed to the Maine Community Foundation. The Maine Community Foundation works to improve the quality of life for all Maine people. To find out more, visit mainecf.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening.